I'm back in Great Adventures of Material World, the artwork by Lu Yang featured at Next Museum. It's a work where you can pick up a controller and stroll and play through a video game that Lu Yang made. And just like many great video games, it has a fascinating story. One that transcends daily human life. One of great adventures where you can battle with gods, get in touch with spirituality, and one that makes us ask ourselves some hard-hitting questions. Just like many artists before him, Lu Yang is trying to make us think with mythology. Welcome to the third episode of But Is It Art Season 2, a podcast by Next Museum in Amsterdam, the home of new media art at the intersection of art, science, sound and tech. Every episode we're discussing a theme from the exhibition Unidentified Fluid Other. This episode we're diving into mythology. How has mythology been an inspiration in art for centuries? What draws us to mythology? And how do artists reinvent mythological stories with new technologies? This episode features artworks by Lu Yang, Julius Horsthuis and Jacobi Satterwhite. A little change of scenery. We're swapping next museum for maybe the most famous museum in Amsterdam, the Rijksmuseum. Home of the Night Watch, Dutch Masters, but also a surprising collection of medieval, Renaissance, Spanish, Italian, and modern art. I'm here with Marie Alexandre Calandra, one of my co supervisors at Next Museum. Marie is also an art historian with a passion for mythology, so she was kind enough to give me a tour through the Rijksmuseum. After dodging a herd of tourists, we stop in front of a big, sinister painting. Here's Marie. So what we're seeing right now is a painting by Dirk van Barburen. And it's a scene depicting Vulcan chaining Prometheus to the slab on which he will be attacked daily by an eagle. And you can see Mercury, who's also uh, watching in the background with a grin on his face. This Dutch painting from 1623 depicts the Greek, or possibly older, myth of Prometheus. It's a fascinating, truly mythological story, and possibly one of the most important ones in Greek mythology, as it explains the origin of mankind. Zeus allowed Prometheus to create humans as a thank you for helping the gods win the war against the Titans. But Prometheus wants his creation to thrive, and he needs Zeus's support for that. So he decides to trick Zeus. This is Marie again. And this is where uh, Prometheus invites Zeus down to Earth to meet the men and have a a big banquet, effectively. And he's presenting two bowls of different kind of offering. One is made of fat and bones, and the other one is bellies, uh, like guts, effectively, and all the good uh, steaks and good pieces of the bowl that was sacrificed for this offering. So uh, he devised a uh, strategy where he hides the best bits under the guts for the least enjoyable part of the bowl and then hides the bones underneath the fat, which is the more appealing uh, part of the animal, and then decide to 
present both balls as a game for Zeus to decide which one he's going to want to have as a sacrifice. Zeus, uh, who is easily tricked, chooses the ball with the fats and the bones. And as he realizes his mistake, he angrily uh, leaves the party and takes the fire away from men. Like most stories that are passed by telling them, there are multiple versions to how he gets the fire back. What is sure is that he gets or steals them from Vulcan, the titan of forgery and tools. As soon as Prometheus gets the fire, he brings it back to Earth. But obviously Zeus is very upset because uh, it wouldn't be mythology if there wasn't somebody being betrayed <laughs> and seeking revenge. And Zeus uh, decides to devise a punishment uh, and involve using Vulcan to chain Prometheus to a slab on a side of a mountain uh, and every day an eagle will come to eat Prometheus's liver and every night the liver will grow back and so the point is to condemn Prometheus to perpetual agony in order to have him regret his mistake and to punish him which Prometheus will never do he's actually very proud of himself and just like any mythological story has some sort of betrayal there's also a message for the listener reader or viewer Something that relates to us, ordinary humans as well. You can see a myth uh, for its truth, or you can see it for the story that's behind it. It's always great storytelling, that's why they endure so long. I think as much as these are godly other beings, they are exhibiting very human characteristic. They are jealous, envious, they are benevolent and altruistic, and these are archetypes and figures that you see fighting themselves for over values and over belief and over needs. So it's a way of exploring, I think, human nature at its worst and its best at the same time. And that's why those stories are appealing, you know. This is why we have very successful shows today that are still using the same tropes, the Marvels, the Game of Thrones, all of these very extreme characters are very much built on this kind of storytelling. Whether it's about a greedy titan and a selfish god, or a power-hungry villain and an ambitious hero, we love to tell mythological stories because we often relate to them. And artists love mythological stories because of this sometimes subtle relatability. Because why would a 17th century Dutch painter choose to paint a Greek myth? Visually, as a language, it's, it's a very popular uh, way of depicting stories because it's instantaneously recognizable, I think, by people because those myths have endured and are still being taught in school. So any viewers of the last seven centuries probably would be able to recognize a mythological story. It's a very dramatic setting. These are very dramatic stories very often. Uh, and I think it's a bit more exciting. And yeah, the fact that it isn't set in contemporary time, in a, it's, it's not really set in any particular place. You can set a mythological scene in any kind of setting you want it to be. Uh, these are adaptable. It's a little bit like a Comedia dell'arte. You have archetypes, you have characters, and you give them a certain amount of attributes, and then you shuffle the stories around, and you recreate those stories endlessly. People have been using these archetypes of mythology for centuries in art. Whether we're talking about tiny, portable, prehistoric sculptures carried around for some sort of protection, or Greek statues of gods, murals in Mayan temples or Yoruba praise songs. Just like Marie explained, mythologies are always some sort of reflection of ourselves. They're made to showcase us at our best 
and our worst. In his art, Luyang is very inspired by Buddhist mythology. What intrigued Luyang most are the questions raised in Buddhist mythology. What is the self? What is the other? Is there life after death? And he wants to bring these questions to today. Here's a recording from Luyang. 1,500 years ago, like we have Buddha, we have, we have lots of very, very um, yeah. good people. We could be holy, holy people. And say yeah. say idea in their mind is it's uh it's super and now the now people they are more and more less to think about it on those kind of level. This kind of questions is actually um from thousands of years of human history, people always think about it, but now maybe not so that much people to think about more more like more over those kind of things than before. But maybe we can I can use those this kind of measure to bring those questions back again to the, mm. to the audience. Luyang wants to bring these existential questions back that we have been asking ourselves for thousands of years. Questions that have passed through stories in songs and scriptures, in temples and in art in general. And Luyang uses his medium, the video game, to bring new life into this mythology and to the questions linked to them. I always uh, love to create avatars. And mm -hmm. in this game, you can see a lot of avatars I've created. And I, but, but I think this it's like a habit. Uh, people, they always love to do, like thousands of years ago, they, they, they love to create different gods. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For example, in Hinduism, you can see maybe they have over thousands of gods in Hinduism. And now uh, we have some Marvel or those kind of Mar Marvel heroes. Mm -hmm. yeah, so they totally. always yeah, project themselves on a, a virtual character they are creating. And, but now the technology can bring us the feeling like we can, uh, sometimes I, I think my, my consciousness is descending on the, the virtual character. We will always be creating gods. And now we can actually be gods as well, or at least virtually. This broadens our idea of mythology and it brings it to a new realm. It becomes even closer. Even though gods were already a reflection of mankind, now gods can be a reflection of you personally. How is mythology defined? Mythos means story or speech in Old Greek. And logos is word or study. So it's about the art of storytelling, in essence. And without trying to be controversial, some of the best storytellers are religions. We saw that with Luyang's Buddhism. But we also see that in Christianity, in Islam, Judaism, with the Bible and the Quran, the Torah, and actually in religions all over the world. In the medieval section of the Rijksmuseum, this bond between Christianity and art is very apparent. But why? Here's Marie again. The purpose of art was to represent the word of gods and the stories as well. It's a way to 
illustrate effectively without creating a situation of worship of the art itself, but worship of the story. It's a bit of a tension uh, between those two because obviously Protestants took a very different approach to that. But so the visual language of Christianity is really here to tell the story in a way that other mythology have used this visual language of carving, you know, temples with stones and paintings and all of that. Each civilization has a different medium. Some people prefer mosaics, some people prefer painting. And I think because it's Europe, uh, we use painting and sculpture as a way to remember and to tell and to transmit over time. And we see this form evolving, but the, the, the narration and the story remains. Another important art form that had to reflect the word of God was architecture. Marie and I are standing in front of a painting of a church. And I ask her, what makes this feel so spiritual? It's meant to create a sensorial experience. I think there's something that we miss a lot when we visit church today is, first of all, there's no color. Those were painted in very colorful colors, very similar to uh, Indian temples, actually. That's what a church is to look like. So a visitor would walk into the brightest building he's ever seen in his life, and you would have incense, and you would have music, And it would be this very overwhelming experience. And then you would go there every weekend, often in your best attire, and everybody would gather together and there would be music. And often churches, architecture is also built for music and acoustic to work. Uh, so you really have this enhanced experience. Uh, and for someone that probably lives in very modest accommodation with very little light, candles are expensive, windows are quite small and usually pricey and usually very thick, you walk into those big, big buildings who are kind of like stone lace. You know, they're very well crafted. There's lots of light. It's beautiful. It's ethereal. Uh, yes, that would have been a, a very intense experience. I also talked to Julius Horsthuis who made the artwork Foreign Nature for Next Museum. It's very often compared to a church, and in a way it also has to evoke a feeling that is spiritual. But let me set the scene first. Foreign Nature is a video and audio artwork projected on three walls and the floor. Hypnotizing music accompanies just as hypnotizing and colorful visuals. It's a choreography of shapes, growing and morphing into each other. And all those shapes are fractals. But what are fractals? Let's ask Julius Horsthuis. This is very hard, and this is why if you become a visual artist, it's so hard to, because um, like, I am not good in talking about it, because you have to see it, right? That's the, that's the whole point. But if you had to describe it, it is often, so people often, they see worlds that look like maybe something from a, from a different civilization or from a different era, like ancient ruins combined with, um, with a sort of intelligence. Uh, they often look like things that you know in nature. Uh, fractal patterns are everywhere in nature, like things like ferns and broccoli or the tentacles of an octopus. Or There's many kind of things in nature that have these sort of fractal patterns. And also people um, often report seeing fractals when they're in sort of altered states of consciousness. So fractals are these geometrical elements that grow and grow in a very organic seeming way. But this growth can be deduced to a mathematical formula. Fractals are a way that mathematics can sort of express itself and it does it on in, in very different things. So for instance, like the code of a fractal can sort of be encoded in DNA and the DNA 
is sort of rendering the fractal and therefore you can create a lot of complexity which is everywhere in life. It's a simple formula basically in order to create a fern it's just to say well grow a, a piece of leaf and after x number of uh, time or steps or centimeters or whatever then you branch out and you do that again and you do it again for each branch and you do every time it's a little bit smaller so it's a simple formula that, that stipulates how that fern leaf comes to be. Julius says that he does not create the fractals he discovers them. What does he mean by that? I use the term discover instead of create sometimes to anticipate the idea that what you create with a computer might not be like what you create when you're making a painting or when you're making a sculpture. And I think it's a fair thing because it's not something that came from my mind. It's something that already exists out there in a mathematical reality. These shapes that I create, and now do create in quotation marks, um, air quotes, those things are not made by me. I can't claim that I have made them because they are, they are basically embedded in, this, in, this, in, in mathematics. So what I do is I discover them as in, in the vast array because there's like, you know, there's a, a billion possibilities of different kind of shapes that you can, you're sort of, you're sort of looking for them as if you were a, um, a documentary filmmaker going out into the forest and looking for a beautiful, I don't know, a mountain or tree or whatever. And then try to capture that with a camera, with the, with the, with lighting, with. So that's what I mean with with. I think when I'm talking about discovery, this analogy with a documentary filmmaker is pretty accurate. In Julius's version of a documentary, the protagonists are the fractals. They exist somewhere in an environment, but he frames them. He puts them in another context. He puts them together. He separates them. He uses them in different ways through a matter of time. Think of Julius's art like a nature documentary, because fractals are a very natural phenomenon. But it's hard for our human brains to grasp exactly how they work. And similar to how we didn't know where thunder and lightning came from and how it worked, we invented Zeus or any other god to make sense of it. And to make sense of fractals, we use computerized tools. I do not really understand the math. I'm not a mathematician. And um, when you use the computer as a tool, you can already, you can have an intuitive understanding of the math. You can sort of feel what it, what it does without actually understanding what it does. And it, I have sort of understood it a little bit, but I couldn't explain it to you in a, like, like a mathematician could. But I can feel, I can sort of, I, when I see a shape, I can get the sort of feel of what kind of fractal made that. Or I can sort of predict when I take, you know, like couple of fractals together what what kind of stuff comes out so there is this sort of intuitive understanding without there being a real understanding which i think is a lot of a lot of people have intuitive understandings of of things like everybody understands gravity intuitively everybody knows if you drop something it will fall but without actually knowing the equations of you know the, the mass time acceleration and all these types of things so it's a little bit like that so you you sort of you're you're comfortable in the world without without knowing and that I kind of like that because it's kind of the magic a little bit. The magic stays. I think maybe if I re would really understand it, that it would sort of, um, you would see through the little trick that happens. And the trick is, the, is, is what excites me. Maybe it's a bit far-stretched, but mythology is exactly this. It makes something mundane and explicable more exciting and special. And through his art, Julius wants to evoke the magical feel of fractals. I want people to feel the same kind of amazement that I have when I first saw that formula. And when I was exploring 
through this very gritty, low-resolution, pixelated thing on my laptop. Uh, and 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 you're sort of you're taking this new formula and you see this weird kind of space, place, world, whatever it is. And there is this feeling in me like this. It's very hard to explain. But it's sort of like awestruck or amazed um, or um, 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 transcendental or, you know, and that kind of feeling is the kind of feeling that I want, you know, these the spectators, the, the, the viewers to have as well. Julius is talking about an amazement very similar to that in churches and other places of worship. And that's not a coincidence to him. The same way fractals were used as a religious experience in places of worship, Julius now takes these fractals, uses new technology to discover them, then uses other technology to create worlds where these fractals are framed and where they can coexist, And that evokes this same spiritual, mythological feeling in the visitor. I mean, this idea that these spaces are like spiritual places is something that really appeals to me and that is quite obvious to most people that look at the the fractals. It's very often it's a Buddhist temple or it's a church or it's a mosque. You know, mosques, they use all these like mathematical things as well to decorate the ceilings and all that stuff because they cannot make paintings of, 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 of the deity. Um, so for me, this is exactly, this is the, this is the new temple. Mythology in the more mainstream way, with gods and lore, is not gone. Marie is actually still very drawn to mythology. Here she is again. It's interesting because I come from a Creole family and Creole don't really have a mythology per se, but it's made of everyone else's culture because, yeah, it's a culture of syncretism effectively. Uh, And if you go to where I come from, which is La Réunion, what I find interesting is every high street has a mosque, an Indian temple, a Chinese temple and a church because this is what... uh, this is what Creoles are. They're a mix of all kinds of people and everybody observes everybody else's ritual. So there very much is an awareness of all this different uh, culture and those mythology. And even if I grew up in France and I was raised a Catholic, uh, I think I was always aware that this was one culture amongst many. And I think in my family, we're very flexible and interested in other people's stories because that's how my grandma was brought up. And I think unconsciously she transmitted that to us. I see it really as great storytelling. I see it as inspirational stories. And I still use it as a way sometimes to make decisions in my life because I recognize myself in a lot of these, these figures and I think about it a lot. So, yeah, I would say it's a lot of different reasons. Marie is not alone in how she refers back to mythology as a way to handle life. In fact, there is a whole art movement called Afrofuturism, which is rooted in African culture and it takes mythology from that continent to create a vision of the future that is pretty optimistic. It's a form of science fiction and fantasy that is a counter-movement to the Western domination in the art world. One of the artists active in this movement is Jacobi Satterwhite, He's also showcased at Next Museum with his artwork, Birds in Paradise. It's a two-channel video installation combining voguing, poetry, and yes, Yoruba mythology. Here's a recording from Jacobi talking about the influence of mythology in his work. Robert Ferris Thompson's Flash of the 
Flash of the Spirit influenced a lot of the folklore mythologies that I appropriate in the work. It's heavily rooted in the Mamiwata, you know, water nymph, mermaid spirit. Uh, like these Nigerian folklores were really, really mm. important. But the thing about Gallaudi masquerade culture that was so influenced to me, the Yoruba culture, was that what their performance is about is that they perform to celebrate the queen mother of the village, the spirit of the village that is the Instead of the patriarch, the matriarch is the most powerful in that village. And they do song, dance, and performance and interdisciplinary sculpture as a way to co convene together to celebrate that figure. And so I felt like the meta narrative of that parallels with my own private practice so much, where I created interdisciplinary practice to celebrate my mother's archive and her artistic existence. So sure. I thought it very tongue-in-cheek for me to take on the queen mother kind of like Gallaudet thing. So in Avenue B, you see Gallaudet masquerade performance being quoted. You see that throughout the Birds in Paradise series. But the Mami Wata, uh, you know, taking in the bodies into the ocean to cleanse them in as a retribution, as a resurrection, as a, 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 re a reset kind of mode, as a way of like starting over. I mean, you see that in Birds in Paradise along with a lot of circularity. Which, and there's lots of that going on. Once again, Jigoldi found elements in mythology that not only referred to mankind, but to himself. As an interdisciplinary artist, he saw himself reflected in the interdisciplinary nature of Yoruba culture. And as an artist, he often pays tribute to his late mother through her poetry. Just like in Yoruba mythology, they paid homage to the Queen Mother. Just like Jacobi, Luyang also finds comfort in the mythological. There's something utterly human about it, something that we can relate to. But keeping it at a distance through tools like computers or painting or a video gives it its magical feel. Digital worlds and the technology to create them have created a world where everything is possible and where we can be the gods we want to be without limitations. We can literally create worlds, lore and more. Think of Ocean World, who we discussed in the first and second episode. His work is full of mythology. He created his own intricate storylines, family trees and world building. But when we then put ourselves into these worlds, what does that do to us? Are we still ourselves? Or do we become mythological? Thank you for listening to the third episode of But Is It Art Season 2. Next episode is all about the digital self. Who are we when we are reduced to zeros and ones? Which possibilities does it create? But what are the pitfalls? And how do artists play with this digital self? And how do they cater to digital visitors? The artworks featured in this podcast are all exhibited in Unidentified Fluid Other in Next Museum. Please come and visit us. Hope to see you there. <laughs>